Hello, I am sitting in a shed. No, not just any shed, but the shed. A double door, six by four foot monument to tool storage that is now the home of these recordings. I'm, I'm six foot three, so with hindsight, I should have got one a little bigger, but this is a great shed nonetheless. I'm Ben Richards, and in partnership with There's a Beer for That, this is Growing Beer in a Shed. Welcome back, and thank you for downloading and listening to this second episode of Growing Beer. Now, you may remember from last week that I explained what I hope to get from this project, uh, talked about the state of the allotment, and got some gardening advice from Toby Buckland. But you'll be pleased to hear that things have moved on, and this time round, we've got a totally different set of challenges. And these are construction, weeding and pests, and getting the hops planted. So first of all, construction, and by that I mean building the shed. As I left it last week, it was far too cold and windy to be hosting these podcasts out in the open, so we had to get a shed. One thing I hadn't considered was that it turns out you need permission to put up a shed on our allotments, so after getting the nod from the parish council, the build began. I had limited experience of putting up uh, garden structures, so this time round I roped in Mike again and then my father-in-law to help, because it should have taken three hours, but Due to a fairly predictable lack of experience and an absence of a decent drill, it may have run over into a second day. But then there's actually quite a lot to do. Uh, you've got to dig out the ground, level it, set up the base, and then put together the shed on top of this. Anyway, regardless of this, we now have a pent-roofed, shiplap-panelled double-door shed. I don't know what most of that means either, but it is a good-looking shed. And once finished, I held a family painting session to move from the standard brown to a much more fetching Baltic blue. A little while ago, I went through, I guess you'd call it a phase, of reading about the great Arctic and Antarctic explorers and adventurers of Scott and Amundsen and their race for the pole. And having worked through the freezing conditions, and, and you may remember the Arctic storms that came in in January, having worked through these to get the shed up and clear the rubbish off the allotment, I started to make somewhat unrealistic comparisons between myself and their efforts, and I decided that I should name the shed. And this is where I made my first real error of the project so far, I think. I had in my mind a name that conjured up their great achievements, such as uh, Ernest Shackleton's Trans-Antarctic Expedition, the name of his ship, the Endurance, or, or something like Discovery. But, foolishly, I decided that because she'd helped me paint the shed, I would ask my five-year-old daughter what she thought the name should be. Uh, this is how it went. Hey, Fizza, how are you? Good. Yeah? You did such a wonderful job helping me paint the shed that I thought I would ask a very important favour. Do you think you could come up with a name for the shed? What do you reckon? Richard. Richard. You know that our surname is Richards, don't you? Mm. It's a good name. I like it. Any other names, maybe? Pikachu. Pikachu. so the choices i have are richard or pikachu i was thinking of something a little bit more majestic but you you prefer richard okay all right i guess i guess richard it is then thanks isabel
So there we are. The shed is now called Richard. This is made slightly more ridiculous when you consider that our family name is Richards. So the shed is actually called Richard Richards. Uh, great. Next up was the ground clearance. The rubbish may be gone, but now it's time to clear the beds of all the weeds that live there. And in fairness, they've been there long enough, I think, to have a rightful claim to the allotment themselves. It turns out that they are extremely well established. And just to get to the bare soil has needed some serious clearance work. And there's a real range of, of weeds and plants growing there. Some areas uh, have an interwoven mat of couch grass and general greenery that we just rip off and, and peel back like turf. But other species needed more work. Uh, I don't mind nettles. Once you've got over the initial sting, uh, the combination of mild tingle with the therapeutic ripping up of long sets of roots is actually almost enjoyable. But there are two weeds in particular that are getting on my nerves. Horsetail and bindweed. I don't know if you've come across these before. I never had. Bindweed is just horrible. It spreads over the surface like you would not believe. And every bit of root that you leave in the ground will regrow as a whole new plant again. So you have to get every single bit up to try and get rid of it. Horsetail is much the same. The roots go down feet, feet and feet into the ground and are specifically designed to break apart when you pull on them, which is also really annoying. Now, all of this means that just to clear one square metre takes absolutely ages and you need to remove the top layer of grass, turn over the soil and then pick out the various roots by hand, digging deeper if necessary. I mean, hats off to the bindweed and the horsetail. They really do know how to survive. And it's during this weeding phase that I came across my first real unwelcome pest. I'd prepared myself for slugs, snails, rabbits or birds, but I wasn't ready for a bull. A huge bull, probably about a tonne of bull. Uh, it had got into the allotments overnight from the neighbouring farm and it had gone for a bit of a wander, leaving a nice trail of massive hoof prints right through my beds. Luckily, there is nothing damaged as there is nothing growing yet. But I really, really don't need this happening in the summer because I have a sneaking feeling that every single bit of barley and every single hop cone is going to really count come the final brew. So I've gone back to the parish council, I've asked them to check with the neighbouring farmer if it is actually their bull, and asked them very nicely if they could stop it from its nighttime forays onto the allotments. Now this did get me thinking though, about something that I haven't really considered before, and what are the risks? I'd thought about problems that might come up over the course of the year, but not about the exact risks and how dangerous they are. So... I got a little bit project manager about it and I sat down with a spreadsheet and I made myself the hierarchy of danger. So I'm going to say that in a more grand voice. The hierarchy of danger. I listed all of the potential problems I can think of and I scored them based on how likely they are to happen and how much damage they can cause if they do happen. I then took into account what there is I can do about it and this gave me a set of scores for which I could rank my concerns and fears. At the bottom of this list are the fairly predictable things. It's the rabbits, the slugs, the snails, it's the birds. Pheasants in particular, I think, are going to be a problem. And I've included the bull on that. And whilst he's got huge potential to just tear the site apart, hopefully, by speaking to the council, it's not going to happen again. Now, moving up a layer from those pests, the first of these are diseases. Because I'm completely organic, I'm somewhat in the lap of the gods uh, and hoping that because I'm growing unusual crops on my plot, that there aren't diseases in the soil or around that will affect the plants. 
because if I get something nasty, there's not a lot I can do about it. And the next item on this level is the good old British weather. I have no idea what's going to happen this summer or this spring or this autumn, whether there's going to be too much rain, not enough rain, too much sunshine, or we're going to get storms. We could get anything. And again, I can't really do much about the weather. But then I realised that I'd left something off the list, and that was me. I am there at every single stage. I have limited idea of what I'm doing, and I've got a huge potential to cause damage. And I can't remove myself from the situation. So, depressingly, I think it turns out that I am the biggest risk to the success of the project. But enough about the problems. I actually have to plant something to get going. Now, my limited knowledge of hops and barley tells me that the hops have to go in first because they need to be in the ground while it's still cold to get them ready for the spring. So why do we need hops in the final recipe and what do they do? Well, we haven't always used hops in the UK. We've been brewing for thousands of years, but traditionally different plants would have been used. So things like bog myrtle or yarrow or ground ivy would have flavoured and added a little bitterness to our brew. And it wasn't until about the 15th century or so the hops were being imported from the continent and slowly taking over from traditional non-hopped recipes. Back then, you would have used the word ale if your brew didn't have hops in and beer if it did. Nowadays, those terms are pretty much interchangeable, but historically they had quite different meanings. And there are a few reasons why hops have become the dominant plant uh, in beer. They act as an antibacterial, so at a time when hygiene was not as good as it is today, uh, without an understanding of yeast, bacteria, and definitely without any kind of modern refrigeration, it's not a surprise that an ingredient that preserved the beer for longer proved to be a bit of a hit. Hops help with head retention in the finished product, as well as producing a really wide range of different aromas, uh, depending on the varieties that you use. But they also provide really strong bitterness. If you've ever mixed up or, or, or tried some of the different herbs and plants that were used in brewing, and then you try a hop mixture, you'll just see how much stronger it is. So it's quite likely that you could get the same effect, but using less of the raw ingredient. So we know that hops are important, but I don't really know which hops we should go for, where we're going to get them from, and how to plant them. So I needed to call in another favour. I hopped in the car and I went up to hop merchants Charles Farrams to speak to Ben Adams about what we should do next. Right. Thank you very much, Ben, for your time and your help. No, pleasure to be here. And we are in one of your warehouses. There are an awful lot of hops in here. It is a yeah, fairly scary amount here. Um, we've got something like 120 varieties from all around the world here, from the UK, from US, uh, New Zealand, all around Europe. So, yeah, there's a fairly wide selection for brewers to choose from. What is it that actually differs between those hops? Well, they are all different varieties, uh, so they'll have different parentage um, and different genes, but the main difference probably between them is the terroir, so it's where they're grown um, and how they're grown, and that has the probably the biggest single effect on hop character and hop flavour. What is it that contributes to that flavour? It's the combination of soil type, temperature, rainfall, everything you might expect with the terroir in vineyards and wine grapes it's the same sort of thing which affects anything that's growing and, and hops are particularly susceptible to it so i've got to be choosing hops that are going to produce the flavors or at least grow well, yeah that, that sort of leads on to what you're doing at your allotment because 
we don't know what's going to happen with your hops until we grow them because they'll be unique terroir at, at your allotment. Sort of um, expected we don't actually have any commercial farms down in Cornwall or Devon, so uh, it'll be the first hops uh, <laughs> growing there for sort of uh, some time. There'll be wild hops in the hedgerows down there, yep, but there um, sort of the, the closest sort of commercial stuff to you i think is probably be Herefordshire will be the the okay so around here around here where we are so yeah we we would expecting classic english character Mm -hmm. uh in in the hops going to be at your your place so that sort of uh woody grassy some spicy possibly Mm -hmm. some herbal character um the sort of the classic english noble hop aroma okay so i've got to choose varieties of hops that are going to do well i can't i don't i shouldn't have any ideas of growing uh, an american hop or a new zealand you, one you you could grow um there's nothing to stop you growing um an american or new zealand ones there particularly they may be very susceptible to some of the diseases which we have in the uk so they they may not grow but there's no reason you can't choose them and the other thing is you you can't expect the same character you might do from an american cascade for example that you'll get from a a Devon cascade, <laughs> um, yeah, because of the different climate. You, you, we're looking at temperatures way down, presumably, from the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. We can hope. Yeah. <laughs> so I would expect, a, you know, a, a slight um, anglicisation, if, if you will, of, of the character of that. So it will be uh, slightly more delicate, more more subtle than its American cousin. So we're surrounded by the, the finished hops ready to go off to brewers around the UK and around the world. But where am I starting? How does it get to this finished point? Well, I guess we've got to start at the farm. So come harvest time in September, where you've got uh, full cones on the bine, uh, they will be picked by the farmer, and then traditionally they will dry them on a, on a hop kiln. There is an in- increasing amount of people uh, and brewers green hopping, so that's taking fresh hops straight from the bine and straight into the beer, but that's a tiny percentage. Most hops are, are dried on the kiln, so you're taking the moisture levels right down to sort of 10-11% from 60 to 70 percent and that stabilizes the hops otherwise they would compost at that point they are put into pockets or bales which are sort of large 60 kilogram plastic bales which are then shipped here from that point we can either make them into whole leaf form or we pelletize them and then we sell them to brewers in five kilogram packs I suspect that my volume will be nowhere near that. Yes, yes, if you make one five kilogram pack, I'd be uh, surprised. Okay, Um, but the kilning process, Mm -hmm. that is a large industrial process. It is. I'm not a large industrial (laughs) process. What could I do to dry those hops out? Or do I not dry them out? Do I go and try and brew them straight away when they're fresh? That's a good question. I think you you probably want to dry them, and I think we might have to rig up some sort of some sort of device <laughs> on uh, the allotment, really. Um, certainly on that scale, I'm sure we can work something out. There, there is a big difference in aroma and character between fresh uh, or green hops and, and those which have been dried. Certainly a lot of the oils and the flavour can develop once dried and is sort of fixed, so you, you do get a different character from the hop. So at the moment, I have nothing growing yet. Mm-hmm. What am I going to put in? What form does a young hop plant seed or a plant come into it most uh, growers will when they're planting a new variety or planting hop will be putting uh, the rhizome or the root so they'll be putting a, a sort of small cutting of uh, six to eight inches of the rootstock into the ground after the first year that will start growing up usually farmers won't harvest that um, the plant is still too weak and too young so they won't harvest any of the anything which does form any hops which do form and they'll let the vigor go back into the plant and then in the second year there should be enough vigor in the plant um, for a decent crop so that presents me with my first challenge i'm doing all of this this year so 
do I have to hope I'm going to get something out of those first year hops, or is it an alternative? It, it is possible. Certainly, in some parts of the US, they can the the climate is uh, conducive to be able to pick in the first year and get get a sort of decent crop off those baby plants. I suggest you don't risk that, and you actually buy some plants which have been slightly bought on. So you buy some second year plants which you can you can plant directly into the ground. So uh, yes, I would I would fast forward. I'm <laughs> not. I've still got the same challenges to get it up and producing, but I've got a bit more of a robust starting point. Exactly that. Probably in the first year, you might be getting maybe one or two hot flowers forming, whereas in your healthy second-year plant, you'd be looking at dozens and dozens. Well, I I like that sound of a healthy plant, assuming that all the way through. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of yield could I expect? And how big are they going to grow? That's a, a very good question, and it's very difficult to say. I don't want to promise anything. Um, <laughs> no, you have to. I, I want explicit <laughs> promises. Um, it will change from variety to variety, depending on which one you pick. Um, I would suggest you go for a dwarf picking system or hedgerow system. So that's um, slightly different from the traditional style of uh, English hops, which were grown on tall wire work. So you're looking anywhere between 12 and 20 foot. I'd be looking at something a lot more manageable. So probably sort of five to six foot range. So what varieties would you recommend that are going to work well for me? Well, I would, following the sort of theme of uh, what you're trying to do, I think probably something, a Fuggles variant would be, would fit quite well with you. It's a plant that was found wild in the UK and most of the wild hops you'll be finding in the hedgerow will be, uh, are likely to be a, a Fuggle seedling of some sort. Um, so that would be probably what I would suggest for you. Okay, brilliant. What potential problems am I going to come across? <laughs> Please, <laughs> very, very few. Hopefully, the answer. <laughs> I shouldn't have laughed so heartily. Um, so there are, yeah, there are a few issues to think about. Some issues you might face. First, pests. Red spider mite and aphids can affect the um, the plants. Uh, you'll certainly have to watch out for rabbits because they love nibbling on young hop sheets. So that's definitely one to be aware of because they could wipe out the whole project <laughs> in the night. My entire crop of six yeah, plants. Exactly. <laughs> in terms of disease, there are downy and powdery mildew, which you could well find on there. The big one would be verticillium wilt, which if that hits hits your plants will, will likely kill it stone dead. Again, that's if you're sort of on an isolated allotment, you probably shouldn't face but um yes that that could uh, stop it in its tracks and the the big issue of course is the weather and how that's going to affect the uh, affect the plants the weather can make or break a, a hop harvest what we're looking for is nice steady amounts of sunshine steady amount of heat and and decent rainfall i'm sure that irrigation on your allotment shouldn't be too much of a problem so uh <laughs> Yeah, we'll be looking for some good sunshine and good heat. Um, Classic qualities of the British summer. Exactly, yes. I I can't imagine we'll have anything less. Roughly speaking, the the more heat and the more sunshine we get, the more flavour you'll get into the hop. So, as long as I get no pests, the weather's fine, and the rabbits stay away, it'll all be good. Perfect, let's go for that. All right, sounds good. Brilliant. (laughs) Thank you very much, Ben. You're welcome. So, after speaking to Ben, I ordered four varieties of hops. I've gone for two traditional UK varieties, Fuggles and Goldings, uh, a continental variety, Perla, and one that originates from the US, which is called Cascade. I've also built the hop pole. 
Now, it doesn't look an awful lot like the structures that you may have seen on commercial hop farms. Those are huge 20-foot-plus posts uh, sunk into the ground with wires running between them and strings coming off. And they can fill entire fields, acres and acres of these. I don't have the space for that. I don't have the access to bring in any poles that big, and nor do I have the means for setting it up. So what I've done is something a little bit more DIY. I've got an eight or nine foot fence post. I've sunk it in the ground. And to the top of this, I've fixed a clump of eight foot bamboo bean poles and lashed them on pretty tightly. They're there very securely. And from the top of these, I've then strung the six bits of hop coir or hop string down to the bottom that the hops will eventually grow up. And these are fixed down with special hop pegs. These differ from your traditional pegs or camping pegs because they're about twice the size. They've got an evil sharp point on the end and they are corkscrew in shape. So as you twist them down into the soil, there is no way they're coming back up again. However, this is where fortune threw me a little bit of a curveball and I ended up in hospital having an operation. Nothing too serious, but if you've ever had an operation on your sinuses, you'll know that it's not particularly enjoyable and it does take quite a few days to get back on your feet. And predictably, the hops arrived the day after I came out of hospital. So I had to ask a favour of my father-in-law, Paul, and he planted them for me. I feel quite bad about this. I feel like I've missed the birth of a child or six little children in this case, but there literally was nothing I could do about it. And that brings us up to now. Next month, I'll be working on the other beds, hopefully getting the barley sown and ready to go. And with any luck, the hops will start to poke up through the soil. That is, of course, assuming that Paul put them in the right way up. Anyway, thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Goodbye.